0: Oh, G'day, May 40 here. I mean, wouldn't it be great if doing the right thing just paid for itself? I mean, wouldn't it be great if the most righteous guys got the most righteous girls and the most righteous girls got the most righteous guys? But if you went to high school and uh, y- you found out that the cheerleaders were indulging in premarital sex, right? it wasn't with the great science scholars. It wasn't with the, the best students in the humanities. It was with the you know, frequently oafish and, you know, jerky football players. And uh, so, too, in, in the real world, Right, the, the most curvy, most attractive women, all right, they frequently, you know, pair up with you know, the guys who, who are the most dubious. So, too, the, you know, the small-breasted solid woman who makes a great, you know, wife and mother, right, she is frequently, you know, passed by by the alpha guys. And uh, she has to struggle, even though she's going to make, you know, a much better wife and mother. Than the you know more curvy and glamorous women who you know, thrive you know briefly from say eighteen to twenty five and then you know hit the wall don't turn out to be great uh, mothers turn out to be briefly great lovers but in the long run don't turn out to be great wives and mothers so doing the right thing doesn't always pay for itself I like what my father said he said the problem isn't that the world isn't fair the problem is that the world isn't perfectly fair. Now, there are two fundamentally different ways of viewing the world. One is to focus on your rights, right? So, you know, right to free speech, right to free exercise of my religion, you know, right to sue, right to gather together to address grievances against the government. You know, focus on your rights. Maybe your neighbors are infringing your rights. Maybe your boss is infringing your rights. Maybe you know, some rando on the street is infringing your rights, right? That, that's one approach to life. And then uh, another approach to life is to instead focus on your responsibilities as members of a tribe or as members of a nation or or of a group so i don't think the classical liberal perspective of seeing people primarily as individuals born with certainly inalienable rights is a particularly useful way of viewing the world i think it's much more useful to understand ourselves as not primarily individuals but members of tribes members of extended families that members of nations and whatever rights that uh, the, the tribe or the nation can afford is going to vary depending upon time and, and circumstance and so it'd be great if you could just go out there do hard-hitting investigative journalism and the world just rewards you for it but if you go out there and do some tough things if you want to go out there and be a hero, frequently the world will push back in not very nice ways. So this is the New York Times. A reporter investigated sexual misconduct. Then the attacks began. After publishing an expose, journalists in New Hampshire faced broken windows, of vulgar graffiti, and a legal brawl with important First Amendment implications. So yeah, getting out there doing the right thing may frequently ruin your life, right? Just because you're doing the right thing Does it mean that you're going to be on Easy Street and people will widely widely recognize you as a hero? New York Times, Sarah.
1: My name is David Enrich, and I am the business investigations editor at The New York Times. Lauren Chulgin, a reporter at New Hampshire Public Radio, published an investigation last year into a guy named Eric Spofford, who was the owner of the state's largest network of rehab centers. Ms. Chulgin spoke to dozens of former employees and patients of those rehab centers who said that Mr. Spofford had engaged in sexual misconduct.
2: I've learned of a pattern of alleged sexual misconduct by Eric Spofford, including harassment and credible allegations of sexual assault from women who worked for him. Spofford declined to be interviewed for this story. He called the allegations false and unsubstantiated and threatened legal action.
1: After her piece was published last year, the homes of Miss Chulgin, her editor, and her parents were all vandalized.
0: Right, so if your understanding of the world is that we are primarily individuals with inalienable rights, such as to free speech, you're going to be horrified and mystified and bedeviled and frantic and outraged by this story. But if instead you understand that we are not primarily individuals, but we're born members of tribes, and whatever rights the tribe can afford us gonna vary depending upon circumstance, you're gonna be, you know, much better positioned to deal with a story like this. So I may not have driven all night to get here to talk to you, but gotta be honest, I had to escape. The city was sticky and cruel. Maybe I should have called you first, but I was dying to get to you. I was dreaming while I walked. yeah, I walked all Arvo, right? I right? I walked for thirty five minutes this Avo. I was dreaming while I walked, like the long straight road ahead. I could taste your sweet kisses. Your arms open wide. This fever for you was just burning me up inside. Like I walked all avo to get to you. Is that all right? I walked all arvo. Now I crept into your room. I woke you from your sleep to make love to you. Is that all right? I walked all avo. What in this world keeps us from falling apart? No matter where I go, I hear the beating of our one heart. I think about you when the night is cold and dark uh-uh yeah now one can move me the way that you do nothing erases this feeling between me and you yeah i i
3: walked all over to get to you police and melrose are looking to identify this man who threw a brick through the window of a new hampshire radio reporter's home last saturday the vandal also spray painted the words just the beginning on the home
1: and at the same time she and her employer were sued for libel and was become a protracted legal brawl that has really important implications for the First Amendment. The story that I'm going to read today is about what happens when journalists go after rich and powerful people and the fights that that sometimes causes.
4: My personal attorney, general counsel to Spoffer Enterprises, new to the team, street fighting attorney wild more on that later but youtube videos out crazy
1: weekend spofford describes himself as a recovering drug addict he often regales audiences with stories about his life of drugs and crime back years earlier
0: so there's nothing that can't be abused from orthodox judaism to orthodox christianity to atheism to secular humanism to science absolutely everything including 12-step recovery, can be abused, right? The 13th step is frequently the slipperiest.
1: I started
4: using drugs and alcohol. I also started selling drugs at 10. I still have the state of New Hampshire's record as the youngest individual charged with a drug sales.
1: He got sober. He started this network of rehabilitation centers. Tell us about your,
4: uh, your house, Granite House.
2: Uh, the Granite House is located in two locations, in Derry and Manchester, New Hampshire. We were, um, I founded it, me and my father founded it uh, 14 months ago. We started the first location.
1: And has become a really big fish in New Hampshire. He was invited to testify before the U.S. Congress about the opioid crisis.
4: Good morning. It's an honor and privilege to be here. I'm the chief executive officer of two substance abuse treatment programs in New Hampshire.
1: And he ultimately sold his company for what he says was $115 million. And along the way, has developed a very kind of strong personal brand with more than a million social media Absolutely followers.
4: Bottom. If there was a rock bottom, I started below
5: it. And so, no matter what, as long as you're breathing this hope, you can build an unbelievable life that includes an amazing network. Amazing human beings,
4: success, money, purpose.
1: And he uses that that to kind of coach people on recovery and on building a business and entrepreneurship and also to browbeat his critics.
4: If you put your goddamn shoes on in the morning and wall into my business and then gossip... You are spreading toxic negativity and attacking what I am working so feverishly to build, what other people are working so hard to build, and what I have put significant portion of my personal net worth on the line and my neck on the line to build. If you gossip in my business, I feel like you have attacked me and the company, and I
1: want you out immediately. I started focusing on this several months ago because
0: I've been breaking stories online for 26 years i've been blogging and vlogging and here's what happens whenever you hurt someone even when you're doing the right thing you're exposing a predator a sexual predator a financial predator right a predator of the soul all right uh people always hurt you back all right so they're usually a very few cheap roads to heroism right you want to be the hero right there's usually going to be some pretty nasty pushback if you just want to uh, fairly innocuous, inoffensive ways of helping people. There are tons of those opportunities. It's just you're not going to get acclaimed as a hero. Right? You can help people all day long, but you won't get praised for it if you take the inoffensive route.
1: As I, like many other journalists at The New York Times and elsewhere, have become really accustomed to receiving legal threats and demands virtually every time we publish an investigative piece of journalism. At the times, we are privileged to have the resources and the great legal
0: oh and so here's here's a great question for many news stories like this and what's the alternative all right what's the alternative to not getting legal threats? The alternative if you don't have a system where people can make legal threats against you is that they will hire goons to break your legs so compared to the alternatives, getting legal threats is a much healthier, saner way of living, right? The United States is a flawed country, right? But uh, where do you think life is just so much better? US legal system has very deep flaws, but uh, which other legal systems you think are just so far in advance of what the United States has? So if you didn't create room for people to sue you when they're unhappy with you, they'd be hiring goons to break your legs.
1: Advice that allows us to deal with these things as they come up. But my hunch was that smaller news organizations would really have a tougher time dealing with these types of legal and sometimes physical threats. So I set out to see what these threats looked like on a local basis. And as I asked around, a bunch of people mentioned to me the case up in New Hampshire. And I started digging and it struck me as a really powerful and vivid example of the threats that local journalists often find themselves facing. So, here's my article, A Reporter Investigated Sexual Misconduct. Then the attacks began. One drizzly Saturday in May last year, a slender man in a blue raincoat approached a house in the Boston suburb of Melrose. It was just before 6 a.m., and no one was around. The man took out a can of red spray paint and scrawled, Just the beginning, on the side of the White House. Then he hurled a brick through a large window and sprinted away. The house belonged to Lauren Chulgin.
0: Wouldn't it be great if you could just be a hero on the cheap? Wouldn't it be great if you could go out there championing the causes of, you know, those who've been taken advantage of and there wouldn't be any pushback, right? So if you live in the liberal delusion that we are primarily individuals with certain inalienable rights, then this news story is going to come You know, it was a great disappointment.
1: Journalist at New Hampshire Public Radio. Hours earlier, her parents' home in New Hampshire had been vandalized too, for the second time in a month.
0: So, come on, aren't we all individuals? Like, when people want to get back at you, you where would they go after your parents? Right? People look for your weak spots. If you've got a family, they're going to go after your family. If you've got a guru, they're going to go after your guru. Right? Whenever I did anything edgy, and uh, people knew that Dennis Prager was my hero, Dennis Prager was my guru, they would go to Dennis Prager with their complaints. If I got close to a particular rabbi, they'd go to that particular rabbi. If I got close to a particular community, they'd go to that community, right? People look for your weak spots, and people are really good at doing that. And so that's the price for having close attachments. That's the price for having community and love in your life. It just makes you so much more vulnerable And you want to get out there and be a hero, right? There's going to be a very nasty price to pay. Heroism
1: usually isn't cheap. Weeks earlier, her editor's home had also been attacked. The vandal's three-word message in red would prove accurate. What started as a string of vandalism incidents has mushroomed over the past year into a bare-knuckle legal brawl with important implications for the First Amendment.
0: Right, so if you understood that we are primarily not individuals but members of tribes... This wouldn't be shocking, right? That that uh, people when they want revenge, they'd go after your family and uh, tribal connections.
1: Attacks on journalists in the United States have become common. Like- uh,
0: yeah, as as opposed to where, like, where are things so much more idyllic? Right? Journalists have enormous power to hurt people. Why would there not be attacks on journalists? All right? Journalists as a profession have enormous power to wreak havoc, to devastate and destroy lives. Why would there be no response? Why would you envision a world where journalists have one-way power to destroy others, but they can rest easy at home that there's going to be no pushback? Right? That's absurd. Right? You give any individual the power to ruin lives, and you're going to set up such individuals and in such professions for other people to hate them and wreak revenge. Right? As soon as you start disrupting people's lives and damaging people's lives and wreaking havoc, then people are going to get their revenge. It's impossible for reality to be any different. Like you can't defeat reality. Like reality is. Right? If it comes to your fantasies and your beliefs and your moral structure, right? and it differs from reality, reality is going to win. And What is happening in this story is just basic bitch reality. This is how the world works. (coughs) And I'm coming back here a thousand times if I have to.
1: Last year, the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker identified 41 journalists who were physically assaulted. In one extreme case, a Nevada politician was charged with murdering a reporter investigating him.
0: The good, the good, you know, aren't always uh, rewarded. Is this my rant? professional broadcaster Hannity sucks at speaking so have you have you looked at Roger Ailes's book on communication The, the way that he would test whether or not someone would be a good professional broadcaster is he'd watch them with the sound off bro so to get the full Sean Hannity effect you need to watch with the sound off
6: it is. So pay attention in Pennsylvania. Herschel Walker continues to outpoll radical Raphael Warnock in Georgia. That race also remains close. And perhaps the biggest political news uh, comes out of the deep, deep blue state of New York, where Republican Lee Zeldin is now officially taking the lead in a brand new poll by Trafalgar. That's Robert Cahaley's group. Now, Lee Zeldin will be here uh, as he's campaigning with Florida Why Governor Ron DeSantis. That's straight he's ahead. Pointless here.
0: This is actually a pretty
6: in a dead heat tie. Anything can happen. Don't think for a second this is a slam dunk. In other words, every voter needs to do their part. Take nothing for granted and don't forget what is at stake.
0: Okay, so you are the message. This is actually a pretty good book by the late Roger Ailes, the man who developed Fox News. So he says, look in a mirror and study your own face. Begin to talk about a political issue and see which part of your face moves and which doesn't. Using the same subject matter, repeat the conversation. However, imagine that you're now speaking to a child. See if your face softens, if your eyes become more expressive, if there is a tendency to care more that the listener understands what you are saying. Most people tend to use more facial expressions when talking to children. So I need to start talking to you like your little children. Let the little children come unto me. Okay, here are the 10 most common Problems in communication. All right, this this is a good book here by Roger Ailes, right? Lack of initial rapport with listeners. Stiffness or woodness in the use of the body. Presentation of material that is intellectually oriented, right? And the speaker forgets to involve the audience emotionally. Speaker seems uncomfortable because of fear of failure. Poor use of eye contact and facial expression. Lack of humor. Speech direction and intent unclear due to improper preparation inability to use silence for impact a lack of energy causing inappropriate pitch pattern speech rate and volume and use of boring language and lack of interesting material so you're asking 40 what does it mean you are the message 40 richard is on with ethan ralph right now 40 is a much better speaker than roger hennedy roger hales after when he passed on 40 talk dirty to me 40 yeah. Oh, Glenn Bentley says, I read that book. Some of it was good. Yes, yeah, some of it is good. So I want to see Richard Hanania in a prime time spot at uh, Foxbro. Good evening and welcome to 40 tonight. <laughs> okay, you're the message. What does that mean? It means that when you communicate, it's not just the words you choose to send to the other person that make up the message. You're also sending signals about what kind of person you are by your eyes your facial expression, your body movement, your vocal pitch, your tone, your volume, your intensity, your commitment to your message, your sense of humor, and many other factors. The Receiving person is bombarded with symbols and signals from you. Yeah, we're always transmitting. And if you're an addict, you're transmitting the disease. If you got intoxicated, you're transmitting God. We're always transmitting like a 50,000 watt KFI radio station. So everything you do in relation to other people causes them to make judgments about what you stand for, what your message is. You are the message. Comes down to the fact that unless you identify yourself as a walking, talking message, understand you're constantly transmitting, you miss that critical point. The words themselves are meaningless unless the rest of you is in synchronization. So if you're uncomfortable with who you are, it will make others uncomfortable too. So I was talking to a fellow sex addict the other day, and I was saying that the most important part of recovery is becoming comfortable with yourself so if you did shameful, shameful things in the past you need to be able to talk to someone about them and to relay honestly what you did without getting all tensed up without your voice you know croaking in shame without you getting a shame attack your face blushing red you need to be able to talk about everything you've done so that you are at ease with yourself right? that's the best way to minimize the chances of having your life disrupted by addiction so generally speaking people with secure attachment patterns meaning people who move towards people who treat them well and who are good for them and people who naturally move away from people who treat them badly and people who have a positive image of themselves right secure attachment these people are the least likely to be stuck with addictions on the other hand People like me and the way I was raised with insecure attachment patterns where I just obsess over relationships that are important to me, or avoidant attachment patterns where you feel like just any kind of attachment is just way too scary, you just prefer to be on your own. Well, that creates a vast hole that addictions kind of rush to fill in. So over the past few years, I've learned to become increasingly comfortable with myself by you know attending the appropriate 12-step meetings, uh, five to ten fifteen minutes of daily meditation has helped uh, getting in a routine i 'm someone who needs routine chaos is not good for me, so I have a disciplined routine and that that helps me achieve a comfort level having money in the bank regular money coming in greatly helps comfort level having good relations with my family friends to communicate. okay so let's uh, just play a little little classic here and then we 'll get back to the show.
7: Like a fucking hundred
0: times I am so mad I am so yeah. fucking mad at these people They don't do this to fucking me We're gonna fucking realistically humiliate them I am coming back here Every fucking weekend I have to Like this is never over I win, they fucking lose That's how the world Fucking works, little fucking kites They get ruled by people like me Little fucking
1: after I fucking, my ancestors Fucking enslave those pieces of fucking shit! I rule the fucking world! Those pieces
0: of shit get (laughs) ruled by people like me! They look up and see a face like mine looking down at them! That's how the fucking world works! We are gonna destroy this fucking town! I'm coming! (laughs) There's a classic uh, Richard Spencer rant from Charlottesville set to. Music, but uh, what the hell is the the topic mean? You know, news, goodness, great sex don't don't pay for themselves. Well, let's just look at news. Good article in latest issue of Mother Jones magazine, left wing magazine. News never pays. Stop pretending the marketplace will save journalism. Right? There's, there's a Groundhog Day vibe in the news about media every day. Seems that horny Phil pokes his head above ground to find more newsroom shutting down and laying journalists off. Like I love journalism. In eighth grade, I decided I wanted to be a journalist when I grew up, but uh, it's really hard to make a living as a journo. Uh, BuzzFeed News, the digital outlet that only a few years ago was winning all the prizes, hiring all the talent, throwing all the parties, it shut down. Its founder confessed he'd overinvested in the newsroom, Vice. right? I remember a publicist was setting me up with, with Vice back in 1998. Right? It's headed for bankruptcy. The Daily Beast is on the auction block. Washington Post, NPR, CNN have announced layoffs. Corporate media owners keep strangling local news, right? The nation's top news organizations are defaulting, right? And uh, what the hell's going on, right? The idea that news is an industry and that the marketplace will take care of ensuring the free and fearless press that a democracy needs is just not true. So the news for profit fallacy means that a lot of people expect that uh, good journalism will be paid for by advertising paywalls and some other commercial wizardry. Right, three of the biggest names in the world of digital news last month, BuzzFeed founder Jonah Peretti, former BuzzFeed news editor Ben Smith, Gawker founder Nick Denton, got together the first time on the Recode podcast to dissect exactly how hundreds of millions of dollars invested in the quest for scale and digital publishing went up in smoke. Right. Uh non profit newsrooms. Right. They're they're working out, alright. Let's go to Elliot Blatt. What's going on, bro? Are
4: Blessings, bro. How you doing? Blessings to you. Little vacation for little little uh, streaming vacation for Luke. Yeah. But mercifully it's come to an end. Blessings. We can all relax. We can all relax.
0: What's going on, man?
4: Well, Luke, you know as we discussed I'm a poet that you are and I'd like to send another poem if I could please okay Luke when I think about you I think about love (laughs) Luke don't live without you (laughs) and your love If I had those golden dreams of my yesterday, I'd wrap you up in heaven till I'm dying. On the way. Feel like making love. Mm. What do you think, bro?
0: That is amazing. I am so moved right now. I'm I'm speechless.
4: Thanks, bro. You've got a gift, man. I know. Unrecognized. But... Press yourself somewhere bro and you're the lucky recipient
0: i mean it's a shame that you're you're stuck with humdrum toss i mean in in a true society in a good society you would have the financial wherewithal to just devote yourself to poetry all day long and you could just that's right making making love out of nothing at all. <laughs>
4: that's right it's my dream bro that's why i, pl- I slog every day because that's a little uh the rainbow on the horizon it's a carrot at the end of this toil i'm um, striving for it <clears throat> so, so anyway
0: it's been a while bro well it's like yeah. 10 days man have you like
4: i'm not the one that stopped streaming bro
0: <laughs> have you lost it at the grocery store recently
4: no no i had an interesting experience though i uh I could relate a little bit. so, uh, so, you know, I've been nagged with these car issues, minor car issues, but issues nonetheless, and if you have a car issue, you get this little indicator on your dashboard. And then we've talked about this in the past, but they've been coming fast and furious brakes problems, you know, left turn signal, right turn signal. uh, oil level, you know, all these indicator lights that come on. And then they, the car barks at you. And it's just like this um, assault, you know. You're always assaulted by your own vehicle, like, telling you about their its needs, you know. And and these some of these repairs can be quite expensive, even though they're easy to do. And so I just hate that. I hate going to an auto repair shop and just getting completely raped. You know, rape isn't right, bro. And so I've had these issues stacking up, you know, and some of them were almost within my grasp, but not quite within my grasp. And so, and then, so, so I get this call more or less out of the blue. I don't know if we discussed this or not, but, um, uh, personally, I've been uh, a former neighbor of mine that's moved away and has been away for a number of years, but then reached out to me sort of, uh, and then, you know, so we sort of reconnected after some multi-year gap and invited me out and like to see their place. I went to their place <clears throat> and her husband turns out to be like this mechanic whiz. And so we, uh, like this past Saturday, uh, we went. Out, I went out to their place and we just sort of knocked out. We did a bunch of car repair, like on our back, car jacked up, tools going hither and yon, and we just, we just fixed all of these problems together, bro. It was like bros being bros. It was so nice and it was so productive, and I just squashed all of these problems, all these mechanical problems I solved with like an hour and a half with a, with a sort of a friend you know
0: oh wow that that must have brought back a lot of wonderful memories with your father
7: (laughs)
4: yeah it did
0: (laughs) remember how you guys would just while away a sunday afternoon working on cars
4: you know wrenches and socket sets and you know wire cutters and all that kind of stuff going clinky clink clack it was so much fun bro and oh, I just Dad. felt so good, man. I felt so good doing that, you know, like yeah. taking control of my destiny, you know, rather than just sort of aimlessly staggering into some sort of repair shop and saying, "Just charging whatever you can." I don't know anything, you know. I took the power of knowledge. I took the power of empowerment, Ooh. and I solved some problems. So it was like really one of the most satisfying things I've done in a long time, bro.
0: But but here's here's my real question for you. You're a man in his 50s. Why haven't you developed a sustained, you know, mutually loving, mutually committed uh, relationship with an honest car repairman? Instead, you've just been going all around town, you know, trying out this floozy car mechanic and that floozy car mechanic. Why haven't you established a mutually loving, respectful and committed relationship with one car mechanic and stick with that bloke, you know, for a long time?
4: Well, I think I think Elvis said it best, Luke. Elvis said...
0: You ain't nothing but a hound dog?
4: No. Why buy a cow when you can get milk through the fence? Bruce, Sage words, th- th- my dude.
0: I don't, I don't get it here. Like, I have found that there are honest car mechanics near me. You know, you get word of mouth. Like, this guy's honest. And so I would just take my vehicle to the honest bloke. And then you know write good reviews about him, and uh, I mean an honest car mechanic is is such a, a valuable thing, but it, it, it's got to be mutual, man. You got to like support the honest mechanics.
4: Yeah, but bro, what if your car mechanic is three hundred pounds and is covered in tattoos? Do you really want to bring your car to that mechanic?
0: Sure, if he's honest, uh, I wouldn't care if you were transgender.
4: Really, bro? Yeah, i don't if he really was honest. Like I don't believe you, bro.
0: Well, there uh, aren't a lot of transgender me. car mechanics, but no, like I support there are honest car mechanics near me, and I I support them. Like I and I wouldn't I wouldn't take some you know cheap attractive you know floozy deal you know advertise for you know an oil change for twenty nine ninety five. I would just take my car every three or six months to my trusted mechanic and say you know do whatever. <laughs> Have your way with my vehicle.
4: Well. And what I never if walked
0: me- in on him raping my tailpipe. That that never happened.
4: What if your mechanic has Budweiser tattooed across his breastplate?
0: I, I don't care. As long as he's honest, bro.
4: Love is really, love bro. and
0: honesty is honesty.
4: Love is love, bro. That's how I read that poem. I was hoping to set the tone for the evening. You know
0: but we have to we have to get into these mutual relationships with the the good guys you know let them know that we love them and respect them and care for them and financially support them so that you know goodness and righteousness you know will, will flow like a mighty river
4: okay so bro all right so this leads me to my second part two of my story while i was up there at this residence and it was sort of a semi, kind of rolling, semi-informal party. And um, so various people would roll in and out, roll in and out. We were picking cherries. They have a cherry tree, right? And so the sort of quote-unquote purpose of the party was to pick the cherries from the cherry tree. Because of all the rain, cherries have been completely, you know, have been uh, very productive this year. So we're picking cherries and people are kind of rolling in, rolling out. They've got their baskets. We're going to pick some cherries. But everybody, everybody rolling in and out was just horrifically obese. Horrifically, Luke. And like, it was such a bus kill. Like, what the fuck? this is what we, this is what we, excuse me, i joking it was so depressing Luke it was so depressing am yeah. I just vain am I just sort of superficial or is there something I have to outgrow but it was like the gigabooty is like de rigueur like we can't <laughs> expect anything else you know am I really the one to feel uh, you know Am I feel? am I supposed to feel ashamed of not being attracted to this monstrosity that I'm looking at
0: No, but I think we have to keep things in perspective. Like when it comes to a a car mechanic or or a neighbor or, you know, interacting with people, you know, berry picking, what's most important is that they're, you know, fundamentally honest. I mean, that's 10 times as important as whether they're fat or have tattoos. So, I mean, we want the best possible relations that we can have with everyone we interact with, including the fatties.
4: Yeah, I know. And I did my best, you know, and I was perfectly like, uh cordial and respectful and courteous and thoughtful and charming and everything else beautiful i couldn't wait i couldn't wait to get the fuck out of there i couldn't wait
0: did 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 they remind you of your own you know obesity of the soul inside
4: it did it just felt me it just threw me into this like introspection of horror like am i really this vain am i really this sort of uh you know you know, superficial? Am I really this sort of appearance-driven? Oh, and the oh. fact is that I am, bro. Oh, oh, oh!
0: But do you do you get the same feelings of revulsion when you're around an underowner? Like healthy people, oh. when they encounter debtors and underowners, and mm-hmm. sex addicts, and alcoholics, and and drug addicts, they similarly get the same sort of revulsion that you feel towards the fatties. So, do you feel? That same intensity of revulsion towards addicts and, and underowners.
4: No, flat no. Sorry, I don't. Underearning, I think, is underearning is a sort of superficial, um, you know, it's a superficial imbalance that can be rectified rather easily but uh, I,
0: for just, some people yeah for some people it is a superficial imbalance but for the for the true underowner it's something that's life-threatening not just for him but for the people around it so for example you get in a car with an underowner and he hasn't you know had the brakes checked you know the tires are bald you know you're you're, you're risking your life um you know someone who's you know filled with self-loathing right they're, they're much more likely to make you know, self-destructive and socially destructive decisions so for for a lot of people Earning and under-earning is a matter of life and death.
4: Uh, I disagree because under-earning could be a, sim- a symptom of someone has like some artistic passion, right? And they're not really interested in making money. And they hate making money. And they're just completely repelled by the idea of making money. So in fact, they don't make money. And so they they earn less than they need to to survive and yes it's a problem but it's sort of tempered by this sort of kind of artistic zeal that they have i'm able to forgive under earning much more than i am you know obesity. Fat people. Which, so you would yeah. you would
0: five times rather be around under owners than fat people
4: yeah it, it, probably 10 times
0: wow and i'd 10 yeah. times rather be around uh non-under owners than under-owners, you know, even if they're obese.
4: Yours is probably the more healthy thing, but I, I'm just trying to be frank and honest. With you, yeah, no, I'm I am telling appreciate you the it. truth. Yep. You know, no, no, it's like, it, I, I, I understand the wisdom and the virtue in the position that you're presenting, but at the same time, it's like, all right, let me give you an example. So, you know, years ago, I used to go to a chess club, and I played chess. And there were good chess players that had no charisma and then there were bad chess players that had lots of charisma. Right. And I'd always prefer to play the high charisma, bad skill players rather than the low charisma, good skill players.
5: Yeah. Like, it, charisma,
4: you, yeah charisma. Yeah. Charisma sort of, yeah. is the fire that makes social interaction enjoyable.
5: Yeah. And if you lack that yeah.
4: fire, like I couldn't care less right and like and like high charisma also so to me not scientific bro but high charisma also sort of correlates with high humor you know and this is what I'm drawn to this is the flame that this, this moth this moth being i is drawn to
0: yeah because there's something in you that that's broken and it feels there's a part of your soul that gets filled up by by charisma so that's why you're looking for for podcasts and and videos that fill you up even if you know what they're ultimately selling is cheap grace but if it sounds good and feels good it's it's you know highly appealing for you like junk food for the soul
4: yeah yeah Uh, basically i'm a i'm a intellectual junk food addict and i need help bro
0: Yeah, I mean, anyway. it's interesting. What type of people, are, you know, are drawn to charisma? Because you know, charisma is something that fills people up with energy. It fills you know broken parts inside people. It makes them feel more alive, more excited. It, it you know it takes them out of the humdrum reality and transports them to a higher plane.
4: Yes, yes, exactly right, Luke. It's like, yeah. I don't know. It's sort of like it's 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 like a, it's this zest for life that people have, people with high charisma have, that makes them attractive. Like you can't live without zest. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're just eating breakfast, going to sleep, eating breakfast, going to sleep. Somebody with charisma makes it feel like there's some transcendence in the offering.
0: And what if they offer you a – a parasocial relationship so you feel like you're really getting to know this person and that they are you know a a virtual friend
4: that'd be very seductive my dude very seductive indeed
0: and you see that they've got some things that you don't have
4: yeah true that would that would intensify the allure
0: yeah that that uh that parasocial relationship. Now, you've had you've had that at times. So I what have? have been the most intense parasocial relationships that you've had?
4: Intense parasocial relationships. Um I, I don't know, Luke. I mean Parasocial is a new word to me, so I'm trying to like, I'm trying to wrap some meaning around that. Yeah, so, I've always
0: got a, a new word. I've always got a new intellectual enthusiasm like every every few weeks. like I'm obsessed with some new fancy-sounding word. If, you, if, you,
4: <laughs> if you're talking about internet relationships, right, to mean parasocial relationships, I, I think I know what you mean. But if you're talking about something else, I'm not sure what you mean. But yeah, there's certain internet figures whom you know I, I gravitate towards. I'd want the respect of. Um, uh, I'm interested in, in but uh, relationship seems to be a word to me that uh, crosses a certain boundary. Like it sort of connotes a certain intimacy, and you know I recognize which side of the fence of intimacy I'm on.
0: And and where does fisting play in all this? It's not
4: primary, but it's a subordinate consideration. So so I mean what kind of role does fisting
0: play in a loving committed relationship?
4: <laughs> you got me, bro. You got me, bro. It's a deep. It's- wasn't ready for that one, dude. I am very straight sure about anything else. <laughs> well, bro, all I can say is really is that love is love, bro. And, like, if love. And if love expresses itself through
0: fist, fisting, yeah. And <laughs> we'll love is love.
4: Who am exactly. I to judge, bro? I'm right. just a humble, humble dude, bro. Trying to get through the day. It's not and, me to judge.
0: And has that been a significant way that you have expressed love?
4: Significant? No. Secondary? Yeah. Possibly.
0: Yeah, it's like it's like the cherry on top. Yeah, exactly.
4: It's like, <laughs> it's like uh, Sukkot. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. The. I mean, the, uh, such an obvious analogy.
4: <laughs> totally obvious. Totally obvious. Yeah. Uh, all right blessings all right well now that we've hit the bottom bro i think i think i'm out of gas
0: okay bro thanks for stopping by man thanks for blessing us gonna move on with parafisting relationships (laughs) so okay talk about parafisting here's what i mean by uh, parasocial relationships
6: i am right now in serbia belgrade serbia with Listeners, I have taken listeners on cruises for approximately thirty years. Uh, the only time I've ever missed was when I had no choice when lockdowns, uh, those uh, irrational acts of governmental authority uh, closed down the uh, cruise lines. So obviously it was impossible. Other than that, I've, I've been on cruises with listeners. We are, it's so popular. The listener cruises, Julie, that the entire boat on this Danube cruise from Budapest to Bulgaria, oh, no, actually to Bulgaria, then Romania, uh, is just my listeners. The entire boat is Dennis Prager listeners. So everybody knows wherever they sit, they are with a kindred spirit. I can't tell you how much it means to me to see these people make these wonderful friends from all over America uh, on on these cruises with me. As you know, I love bringing people together, not just getting people married, but just getting people friends. Uh, So uh, the whole thing is a high, to be honest. But I wanted to emphasize your point. You and I are so committed to not missing a single Dennis and Julie podcast (laughs) that here I am, uh, you know, Late at night in in Yugoslavia, well, there's no longer Yugoslavia, in Serbia, and talking to you, and it's just, it's a delight. Julie, so I I know you have a ton on your mind, as you always do, but I I want, while it's in context, to talk to you about the incredible assets, bonuses, advantages of travel. That it is literally, to use a word that's overused, life-changing, to go around the world as often as one can, do you do you sense that? Because obviously you're so young, you know, you haven't been able to get to that many places yet. But is that something that resonates with you?
5: You have no idea. I mean, even when I was in Washington State about a month ago speaking, I'd never been to Washington State. And when I landed there, the second I got off the plane, it was like – Eyes up, pay attention. I wanted to see how the airport was different, how people there maybe dressed differently. When I was driving, I was asking, what's that? Was, I love being in a new place. It's such a new opportunity. I'm going to quote you, actually. I, I have to give you credit. You've taught me that, among many other things. You always give credit to people who you who you quote. We were, Dennis and I were on the phone the other day, and he said, traveling allows you to see the human condition in different contexts and cultures. I thought that was so well said. And I, so, so to answer your question, of course, I try to do it even when I drive to a new part of Los Angeles, let alone a foreign country.
6: Well, <laughs> Look, I'm not surprised because, you know, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I I think God gave both of us very similar souls. So you will get a big kick out of this. I grew up in, in New York City, which has a very extensive subway system. When I was in sixth grade, sixth grade, I went from Brooklyn to Manhattan every day and back on my own using the New York City subway system. So I got on very near Coney Island in a place called the Kings Highway. That was my stop. And then I would go 40 minutes to Manhattan. I wanted to know every stop on the New York City subway system. I actually, on occasion, would just go to the subway and take it to stops I had never seen. And it was so exciting for me. I I mean, we're talking about the New York City subway. We're not talking about Serbia. <laughs> so when you say that you looked at the Washington Airport, Washington, you know, the Seattle, Seattle. Airport, you go, wow, it's different. That's exactly right.
5: You know, I've, I've come to think about this recently. You you said this on a, on a recent episode of Dennis and Julie. I believe you're quoting Socrates, who said the unexamined life is not worth living. I think there are two paths in life, the engaged life and the not engaged life. If you take the former route and you look up and pay attention, it is endlessly interesting. There's so much that, that you can learn. I mean, yes, you're, you're epitomizing it with by, by traveling to, to Serbia. But even if, as I said, just going to a different part of Los Angeles or paying attention to the different stops on the subway, there's a lot to be observed and gleaned from Everyday experience.
6: Yes. So the question that haunts me, I don't have. A, I don't have a full answer.
5: Anyway, this is this is a photo of Savannah reading your book as she's in labor. Oh my god! I get I get somebody, I'll tell you one other email, and then I have some thoughts on what you were saying before. But this this one I might be one of the most touching I've ever received. There was a listener who wrote to us about a month ago, and he said, "Dear Dennis and Julie, I want to write this to you because I can't talk about this." very much in my home because I don't want to further upset my children. I don't talk about this a lot in my workplace because I don't want people in my workplace to see me differently. But I just wanted to tell you, because I view you both as friends in my life, that my wife just died of breast cancer and I'm really sad. It's difficult for me to
0: imagine, imagine the sadness that you can't talk about your wife dying of breast cancer with anyone in your life. So you tell it to a YouTube personality. I mean, uh, the the sadness and the emptiness in this man's life is heartbreaking, But right? If you can't talk about your wife dying with anyone in your life, then you probably need to rethink how you go about your life, and you probably need to bring some different people into your life. I mean, I was empty and bereft when, you know, I embraced Dennis Prager as my Lord and Savior and guru, <laughs> all right? All right, I... I you know, spent my last dollar selling, sending Dennis Prager tapes around. You know, because I was so empty, and the the charisma of Dennis Prager, you know, and his enlisting me in the the fight for good values, right, that filled up the superficially the emptiness in my soul. But uh, it's not it's not a healthy way to try to fill up your soul.
5: Go about my life, and I just felt the need to tell you, that was so touching because it really does show that they thought that this man thought of us as as friends. And that's what, that's what we want to impart to viewers.
0: No, it's not what you want to impart to viewers because you're encouraging them in delusion. And encouraging people in delusion is not usually a good thing. Encouraging people in lies and delusion is not usually the moral thing to do. Right? Encouraging people in lies and delusion is not something to aim for. It's not something you should be selling. Right? You don't know me because I do a show on YouTube. You only know a little bit of me which is a performance. This is a performance. This isn't just like regular Luke.
5: I've made friends off of this show. I have some close friends that I've made through this program. We, we, we don't just want to be talk shows. We truly want to be in people's lives.
6: Well, you know, my description of myself since I began was, I'm not a talk show host. I'm a human with a talk show.
5: Yeah, that's great. That's really great. It's true. I thought, you were, I thought you were. It's a delusion,
0: right? Dennis also talks about how he has to use 10 times as much energy as he would in, in normal conversation to do a, a talk show so it is a performance that gives the simulacra of authenticity you would like that particular
6: line the the yearning to bond with people who are kindred spirits is what's behind all of this and you have it and i have it in, in massively i mean i have a boat
0: yes it's a good thing to bond with people who are kindred spirits particularly if you're kindred spirits in a kind of dissident way and it's not easy to find kindred spirits in, in your real life then If it's supplementing your real life family, your real life relationships, your real life community, then what we're doing now is perfectly healthy. If it's serving as a substitute for real life interaction, then it's unhealthy.
6: Literally a boatload of kindred spirits. And so I don't suffer from what is a very big malaise in America of people who have traditional values and can't find friends because of that fact or have friends that.
0: If you can't find friends because you have traditional values, you are delusional, right? That's not why you don't have friends, right? There's there's something else going on, right? Our problems are never our problems. Our problems are symptoms of much deeper things that we don't want to address, and so instead we, you know, focus on them as our problems. So I'm 57. I'm a bachelor, right? If I focused on I'm a bachelor, I need to fix this problem of being a bachelor, that would be a flight from the reality that there is, you know, a, a deep brokenness with me in. Normal human interactions—a certain inflexibility—with me for normal human interactions, so that I devote so much of myself to artificially created, you know, flight to paradise interactions, where I can control things like my own show, right? My my bachelorhood is a symptom of a much deeper brokenness in me. It's not the problem. And anyone who thinks that they don't have friends because they have traditional values, right? That's Delusion
6: that they can't open up to. So, to a certain extent, we we sort of play the role of being their friends, and it's not playing it, it, it in the sense of make believe. It's it is real. Obviously, I want people.
0: It, it's delusion. All right, you, you do a show, you advocate your conservative values, but you're not friends with people who you never meet, who you have no personal interactions with, and. The only time when I think that is healthy is for people who are in my situation, like in the late 1980s, when I was bedridden by chronic fatigue syndrome, my life had completely fallen fallen apart. And when, you know, reality was just so incredibly painful. Yeah, you know, encouraging people then, you know, for a short time in some kind of delusional parasocial relationship, you know, maybe better than nothing, you know, who knows, I may not be here today, except for my delusional parasocial relationship with, with Dennis Prager. Just like for for some people who you know don't have the option of you know a real life you know sexual, uh, romantic relationship, you know for, for some people possibly you know porn is better than nothing possibly. Right, uh, encouraging people to have a delusional, entirely one way you know parasocial relationship, uh, an imaginary friendship with people you have no, you know personal interactions with is. It's kind of like uh, using pornography, because you you don't have you know a woman in your life.
6: People to have people who are in their lives physically to to have that bond, but a lot of people do not. The there was a a, a couple on this trip that told me that they came with me to Israel prior to the lockdowns. The last time we went, 2019, right before the lockdowns. I never say before COVID, and they were on the trip. Uh, of, of listeners of mine do to, to Israel. And by the way, I have another one coming up this fall and people interested should just go to DennisPraeger.com and click on the banner for information, Stand With Israel. And this boat is 150 listeners. The Israel trip is usually about 500. And they told me something I hear all the time. They said, I just want you to know, we were on bus number 10 and we got so close to the people on bus number 10 <laughs> that we actually have bought a place in Florida where we all stay at, just to be with each other, and they are from all over the country. I don't, I don't oh even know if more than two or four. From-
0: yeah, I mean, these are people who are united by really shoddy reasoning, you know, by you know, really corrupt epistemics, by a, a delusional worldview that you know we're living in, in a society that's on the road to becoming like Nazi Germany and Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union.
6: Florida, they became literally the closest friends in their lives from being on bus number 10. <laughs> I'm gonna tell this when I come back- and You should. I, and I promote it, but it makes perfect sense. I love that, that I'm giving people an opportunity to meet terrific people. You know, people may come for me, you know, it's my old line about, they come for Dennis, but stay for Sue, which yes. you, you know how true that is. It is true. But, I, but it is also true in, in my public life. They come for me, but they stay for the folks that they meet. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I love that, it, it, it doesn't take anything away so it depends on the
0: stew that, that you're cooking. If you're cooking up a stew, that uh, like, like Dennis Prager is doing, telling people that we're becoming like Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union, right? you're creating something that's destructive and to the extent that people take you seriously is going damage, to damage lives. right? If you believe that your left-wing parent or relative is essentially indistinguishable from the commissars of Joseph Stalin, Right, That's going to damage your relationship with those people. It's going to separate you from people that you work with, people that you go to church with, people who are, who are your neighbors and necessarily separate you.
6: From, you know, the bond that they have with me, but it, it is such a, a more enduring one where they have these real people in their lives. The, every, the human being needs people to whom they can open up about what they what they most care about in life. And the number of people who can't open up to friends is, is is scary i know this from my happiness hour i know this
0: yeah well if you can't open up to friends then opening up to a youtube personality or a radio talk show host in some ways is better than nothing but it's the, it's better than nothing in the same sense that for some people perhaps you know using pornography is better than having zero sexual expression but overall it's a delusion and it's a lie and it's damaging Right, the, the more extreme form of this kind of guru-parasocial relationship is the evangelical Christian in Kenya who encouraged people to come join him and starve themselves to meet Jesus, or people who follow Jim Jones into the jungles of Central America and you know, took uh, poison, or uh, people who follow Reverend Sun Young Moon. Right. That's a more extreme form of epistemic corruption. But what, what Dennis Prager has in common with other gurus is encouraging people to cut themselves off from competing sources of information, and to instead, you know, abide by those sources of information that you know he blesses with his kosher certification. Essentially, wreaking you know, epistemic sabotage, making people less able to understand what is true, what is real in the world.
6: This is pre woke, that this was a problem, and post woke, it is a crisis.
5: Coming into this conservative world, if. If you will, that's what I'm going to call it, has made me find so many kindred spirits. Again, just beyond the realm of the political. Just
0: and, and remember her her friends from prior to her becoming close to Dennis Prager, her, her friends from the old days. Many of them think she's joined a cult, and she's just amazed. You know, why would they think that she's joined a cult? But she has taken up many of the characteristics of joining a cult. She doesn't believe any in any outside institution, right? She believes in Dennis Prager and his you know, kosher certification for information, she has effectively joined a moderate level cult, which has many wonderful qualities, right? This is good for her career. I'm sure she's met, you know, many wonderful people. There are many good things going on in her life, but she has joined, you know, a low to moderate level cult.
5: Just kindred spirits in terms of disposition and worldview and life interest, and every, it's, it's been really interesting for me because every place I've gone to, whether it's a speech of yours, whether it's your Torah minion, I know people listening will go, of course, you found this, you know, with Dennis because it's Dennis that's unifying all these people. But even, you know, I, I mentioned my speech in Washington. I went to, to go speak um, in mid-April to a group in uh, northern Washington state. 450 people, and they were all kindred spirits. Um, I spoke recently to a Republican club in, in Santa Monica, all kindred spirits. Coming into this world, I have so... F-
0: yeah, and if you join Reverend Sung Sun Young Moon's organization, you'll meet all kindred spirits. If you join 3HO, Happy, Healthy, Holy, the the sect that promotes kundalini yoga, you'll meet all kindred spirits. If you join some extreme Hasidic or Christian or, or secular organization, you'll be with all kindred spirits. And you'll distrust all competing sources of information not necessarily a good thing
5: found that and as i said it's been fascinating for me to contemplate and this is in a typical dennis and julie way dennis and julie we go out on a lot of tangents but we also kind of i don't know if you notice every episode has this circular like we come around to an earlier point it's it's actually quite nice i think it's because we all believe in something as opposed to just against something you were saying earlier the left gets excited about okay
0: here's another excerpt from this show
6: Uh, do they do good for this country one did immense good for this country one is doing immense harm to this country
0: So most right-wing pundits don't like to praise Donald Trump, all right? They have many reasons to feel highly uncomfortable about him, so instead they focus their fire on the Democrats and they say things like, we're living in a police state. So even if these latest two indictments of Donald Trump are wrong, that doesn't make us living in a police state, right? There's absolutely no uh, equivalence between a misplaced, misjudged indictment of Donald Trump and living in a police state. Living in a police state means living in, Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union or in North Korea today, right? If you live in the United States of America in 2023, you're not living in a police state.
6: Country From the day he came into office and rendered the ability of America to support itself with energy by knocking out...
0: Okay, this is Dennis Prager saying, that, you know, Joe Biden's, you know, the most evil president ever.
6: ...of the uh, the XL pipeline. Uh, to 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 this day, the inflation that he has created uh, and the... the, the, the- uh,
0: Joe Biden didn't create the inflation. Right, he, he played a role, maybe 10%, you know, at most 20% of the inflation that we've suffered over the past two years is due to Joe Biden.
6: First, the use of the Department of Justice uh, to render America a police state for the first time in its history. The...
0: Wow. Right? To, to say that America today in 2023 is a police state, I mean, how absurd is that? And to the extent that anyone takes him seriously and, and gathers with kindred spirits who believe that the United States in 2023 is a police state. Uh, you've entered a cult and it's bad for you and it's bad for the people who are affected by you.
6: The amount of evil that this man has done. Look, we don't generally talk about politics. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: The amount of evil that Joe Biden has done, I'm sure he's wrong about lots of things. But for the average person, uh, for 99% of Americans, 99% of the time, uh, life under Joe Biden versus life under Donald Trump, unless you deliberately choose to pay attention to the news, is indistinguishable. It doesn't really matter that much for 99% of Americans, 99% of the time.
6: And uh, but the evil that this man is doing to this country has no parallel in the history of the presidency of the United States.
0: Wow, right? The evil that Joe Biden is is doing to America has no parallel in the history of the United States. Right? That's how you get to be a right-wing pundit. Right? That's how you enrage and engage. When you enrage, right? And you, to the extent you take Dennis Prager seriously, you will be more enraged then if you didn't take him seriously, right? to the extent that you're a Dennis Prager fan, you will be disabled. You will be dysfunctional. You will be less capable. You will be less happy, less effective in the world. I mean, the idea that the United States is a, a police state uh, because of these you know, misjudged uh, if they are I- indictments is absurd. I mean, instead of you know, juicing up you know, needless hatred, you know, Dennis could uh instead encourage oh, I don't know, understanding. Uh April 28, twenty twenty, Dennis wrote, People argue that a temporary police state has been justified. Talking about America under COVID restrictions because of the allegedly unique threat to life posed by the new coronavirus. Let us agree, we are closer to a police state than ever in American history. So I was in Australia. uh, Australia's response to COVID was about 10 to 20 times more severe than what the average American experienced. And Australia wasn't a police state. So the idea that the lockdowns in America made America a temporary police state is, is absurd. Okay. Let me... Let me get my bearings back to some good, solid reporting here from The New York Times.
1: Libel lawsuits have been on the rise, too, according to the latest data collected by the Media Law Resource Center. Many legal experts said such suits were often used to punish smaller news organizations for aggressive coverage and to deter others from...
0: Okay, so if there's a pushback against journalists who are hurting people, all right, and the journalists may be doing good things, you know, they may be doing great things, heroic things, moral things, but in the course of doing that, they're going to hurt some people. How would you not expect that they're going to want to push back? And if there aren't legal means for people to push back against journalists who are hurting them, they will use extra legal things like uh, breaking legs. So one thing that gurus and pundits do the successful ones, is they make you feel amazing and they make you feel like you are the recipient of some you know, amazing wisdom. And that's what you get here. This is Dennis Prager at Oxford University 2012 saying that Hamas is a greater obstacle to peace than Israel.
6: Brotherhood? Number two, on, 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 on just on this issue, just appealing to your common sense. In modern, in modern history, every war has been between a free state and a police state or two police states. I cannot think of a 20th century uh, uh, example of any other. And the same holds true here. You have the police state of Hamas. If you differ with Hamas, they kill you. Where in the world, other than Israel, does anyone ever argue that the free state doesn't want peace and the police state wants peace? There is no other example on Earth. There is no other.
0: Okay, so the United States, right, supposedly, well, definitely a much freer state than Iraq in 2003. It was the United States that invaded Iraq in 2003. The free state invaded the police state, 2001. Free state, United States, invaded Afghanistan, the you know, quasi-religious uh, police state. Uh, the United States invaded Grenada, 1983, free state invading quasi-police state. The United States has intervened militarily in many different ways all over Latin America, right? The free state, right, invading the uh, sometimes, you know, what you could argue, you know, verging on the police state. So all the time, all the time, free states are invading uh, police states. So what Dennis Pregus says here sounds amazing. You feel like you're getting something truly profound, but upon examination, it's absurd.
6: Other example on earth of a country targeted for extinction. None. 220 some odd countries in this world. Only Israel is targeted for extinction. And we have a debate on...
0: So the United States went to war with uh, North Vietnam, right? Free state going up against a police state. United States bombed Serbia in the 1990s. Wasn't that a free state going to war with a police state? So... Upon examination, many of these you know, seemingly profound and just amazing insights, in the way they make you feel inside, they just dissolve away. Right back to the New York Times.
1: I'm speaking out. And sometimes, as Miss Chulgin and New Hampshire Public Radio have learned, the physical and legal threats converge. Their ordeal is a striking example of the perils facing news organizations in an era when politicians regularly demonize journalists, and some judges want to curtail the First Amendment protections that the press has long enjoyed. Heightening the freedom of the press stakes, a state judge in New Hampshire last week ordered NHPR to let him review transcripts of its interviews with certain sources, including those who had agreed to speak on an anonymous basis. Legal experts call the ruling unusual and alarming, saying such decisions could make it harder for journalists to investigate potential wrongdoing by public figures.
0: Okay, so if you make uh, doing investigative journalism harder, right? it's harder on journalists and it's harder on those who would benefit from that investigative journalism, it's making life easier for other people whose lives are being ruined by investigative journalists. Now, I'm instinctively almost always on the side of investigative journalists. But it's not like there's only, you know, one side with the angels here. It's absolutely impossible to think about any kind of decent society where it's not possible for you know, regular people to fight back against journalists. You know, why should journalists have the exclusive ability to hurt people?
1: Shortly before the houses in Massachusetts and New Hampshire were vandalized, Miss Chulgin had published an investigation into alleged sexual misconduct by Eric Spofford the founder of New Hampshire's largest network of addiction rehabilitation centers. Her house was attacked less than two days after New Hampshire Public Radio refused Mr. Spofford's demand to take down Ms. Julgin's online article. Mr. Spofford has denied the allegations of sexual misconduct and has said he had nothing to do with the vandalism. The man in the blue raincoat who was caught on video is not him. Last year, he accused New Hampshire Public Radio which has about two dozen journalists, of trying to pin the attacks on him, quote, to try to deter me from bringing legal action because they know I will win. Mr. Spofford soon sued NHPR and Miss Chulgin, among others, for libel. Miss Chulgin and her colleagues do not know who was behind the vandalism, but they are convinced that it was connected to their investigation into Mr. Spofford. That's being a journalist in America today, Miss Chulgin said in an interview. Mr. Spofford said in a statement that the New York Times was spreading the same, quote, false accusations that NHPR.
0: Okay, earlier I was playing an MP3 on how to connect by saying it with feeling. I think I found the relevant uh, video here. Let's see if it's any good. That does a tremendous amount towards my feeling of comfort, uh, developing my health, working out, getting decent sleep, getting plenty of exercise, eating right, stuff like that. And then noticing what makes me agitated and journaling about it and, and working it through. So the more comfortable I am, the less likely I am to fall prey to you know, ridiculous addiction. So I used to try to soothe my anxiety by pursuing sex, by pursuing pornography, by attention seeking, by you know, going to extremes in politics and religion. But if I could just calm down, then I tend to make better decisions. Luke recommends Alexander technique for the face. Uh, no, Alexander technique is a holistic technique. The Alexander technique is a way for noticing how you react to a stimulus and whether your reaction serves you. So many people react to a stimulus by their head, you know, jutting forward, tipping back, compressing the neck, you know, one shoulder tends to be you know, higher than the other. One hip is going to be rotated forward, you know, wrenching the whole back. Uh, people carry all sorts of unnecessary tension around the eyes, around the lips, and, and around the forehead. Like, look at this beautiful forehead. Do you see my forehead crinkling right now? You see all sorts of unnecessary tension around my eyes. Do You see the waves of tension just radiating from my lips. I'm a man who is at ease in the world. I'm at ease with me, I'm at ease with you, I'm at ease with this beautiful community that we're creating. And so that radiates from, from my face. Yeah, I, I'm at ease except for when I'm not <laughs> I'm wracked by you know, anxiety and depression. Well, Alexander techniques, disgusting but effective. Well, here's, here's a basic Alexander. Let go of everything that you think you know. So notice I took that in. I let go of everything that I think I know. I have moved from a state of judgment. When I do live streams, I'm frequently in a state of judgment. And now I'm just in a state of awareness, I'm just observing what's going on around me and I don't need to judge it. When I do that, my, my face relaxes. The, the neck and the back unlock the breathing comes easier. Like I get more width and more length as I let go of that unnecessary tension. And so the Alexander Technique, it's a way of noticing how you react to a stimuli and then learning how to let go of those responses that don't serve you. We tend to build up body armoring, particularly as we get older, right? Body armoring are these unnecessary tension patterns. So if you can learn to notice what your unnecessary tension patterns are and start to release them, you will feel more at ease in the world. Other people will have more comfort with you because you are more comfortable with yourself. You'll be less compulsive, you know, less driven. You'll make uh, better decisions. You'll be calm. All right, so it's dangerous for an addicted personality to be struggling, right? If you have a tendency towards addiction, you want to minimize how much struggle you do. And when you do struggle, you want it to be in like an appropriate venue, such as you're, you're struggling to lift a weight or you're, you're struggling with, with a workout. Okay, I put a link there to a video from November 1, 2022, how to connect by saying it with feeling. New Yorker has an interesting article that's connected to what I was just talking about there. Daniel Bard, major league pitcher, made an improbable comeback, then he had to do it again. The Colorado Rockies pitcher overcame a mysterious control problem to return to the major leagues, but the problems were not gone for good. So what the hell happened to this bloke?
7: On a drizzly morning in February, outside Greenville, South Carolina, Bard sat on the dingy turf floor of a baseball facility and did some stretching. It was early, and the batting cages were empty. He had just dropped his kids off at school. A few other local pros trickled in, and he joined them to gossip and to train. After some rapid pull-ups and other strength exercises, he and another player grabbed their gloves and went to spots on opposite ends of the facility for a game of long toss. Bard warmed up by pausing his leg at various heights in his throwing motion before connecting the movements and letting his body flow. Bard was never really taught how to pitch. For a long time, it seemed like he was born to it. His maternal grandfather was the baseball coach at MIT, and his father, Paul, made the minor leagues as a catcher. Growing up in Charlotte, North Carolina, Bard, the oldest of three boys, played catch in the backyard, learning by instinct and imitation. From the time he was two and three years old, he had excellent throwing mechanics, Paul told me. Bard's brother, Jared, played college ball, The youngest, Luke, also made it to the majors. Bard says his parents always told him that he could stop playing if he was no longer having fun. But he had a sense of calling, and his parents, who were religious, understood. When Bard got to high school, he made the team but sat on the bench. He was gangly, less muscular than some of the other boys. Paul told him that he'd be the best of all of them once his frame filled out, and Bard believed him, or at least kept working.
0: So here's the upshot in this story. When you think about what you're doing, you often perform it less well than if you are not thinking about what you're doing. So you will walk more gracefully, more easily, more efficiently and effectively with less stress stress and strain if you're not thinking about walking, right? You will get in and out of a chair if you're not thinking about getting up and getting down to your chair, Movement in general, athletic performance in general, is much more effective and, and efficient and, and graceful if you're not thinking about what you're doing. So if I'm you know, thinking about this show and the great points I want to make, that is a time and a place. But if I let go of all my plans, if I let go of my preconceptions, if I let go of my judgments and how I want to impose my will on reality periodically, and just take a break and move from a place of judgment to a place of just awareness, then My breathing frees up, my back unlocks. You know, a lot of good things come from intermittently letting go of everything that I think I know. Working
7: as if he did. Daniel has always been very cerebral and very responsible. His mother, Kathy, told me he liked to please. He was a typical firstborn. After Bard's sophomore year, his grandfather helped get him into a New England showcase for scouts and college recruiters. Paul told him that he should try to throw 90 miles per hour, something he'd never done. He hit 91, faster than anyone else. His grandfather draped his arm around his shoulder and introduced him to the newly eager scouts and coaches, like, This is my grandson, Bard recalled. Everyone wanted to talk. I had never felt that before. It's a weird feeling, but it was a pretty good feeling when you're an insecure 15 year old kid. He went to showcases down south and kept throwing hard. He transferred to a small private school to get more playing time. Pro scouts came to watch him. and he.
0: So everything's going great until he starts getting coaching, and then everything <laughs> falls apart.
7: He got several college scholarship offers. He accepted one from the University of North Carolina and became an All-America starter. I did the bare minimum to get by in school, which is the part I regret, he said. But it was a deliberate choice. He didn't want to have anything to fall back on. In his junior year, he led UNC to the finals of the College World Series. Afterward, he was drafted by the Red Sox in the first round. He reported to the Instructional League in Arizona, where prospects train with less pressure and scrutiny than they face in the minors. He threw three innings, and nearly every pitch went 100 miles per hour. I was like, oh, if I can do that, I'm going to move, he recalled. I'm not going to be in the minors very long. Bard showed up at his first spring training in 2007 with his confidence overflowing. He pitched well in two bullpen sessions. Then he was asked to throw a third. They had, like, seven pitching coaches watching this bullpen, which is six more than you'd usually have, he said. He'd barely warmed up when one coach suggested that he try a different grip for his fastball. Another said, We think your leg kick is a little big. We just kind of want to calm that down. Bart had never thought about how many inches his leg rose or about the degree of his arm position. He'd always focused on the movement of the ball, not the movement of his body. He took the coach's advice eagerly, but it had a negative effect. His velocity dropped. His command disappeared. Thinking about his motion disrupted his muscle memory, and when he made mistakes, self-doubt crept in.
0: All right, so some people are improved by becoming more reflective and reflexive I mean you know, monitoring what they're saying and doing. But uh, other people just completely fall apart and they lose it.
7: He thought about the opportunity he was blowing and about how much money he'd been given. Anxiety tenses the body. Attempting to control emotion can limit.
0: So one thing that accounts for the level of muscular tension, unnecessary muscular tension in your your body is you know how much you're resisting reality, you know, how much you're treating the outside world as the enemy to be debunked how punitive you are with regard to yourself and other people, all this stuff adds on to body armoring, which makes you more tense, less effective, right? Less effective in movement, less effective in thinking, less effective in relating to yourself, less effective in relating to other people.
7: The degrees of freedom in a joint, the tightness made Bard pitch worse, which aggravated his anxiety.
0: So when you tighten up, almost nothing good happens from that. And we tend to tighten up to get through difficult times, but then it becomes very, very difficult to let go of that unnecessary tension. So as we age, we have more and more layers of unnecessary tension and compression, distorting our musculature, distorting our thinking, distorting how we feel, distorting our perception of reality, distorting how we relate to ourselves and to other people. So the Alexander Technique is a technique of subtraction, of noticing and letting go of all these harmful ways that we're distorting and compressing ourselves.
7: Setting off a negative feedback loop. The Sox assigned him to their high A club, a typical spot for a new first-round pick, but he couldn't find the plate. He was demoted to low A in Greenville and didn't fare much better. The beauty of baseball, people say, is in its daily repetitions. You get a lot of second chances. But when things aren't going well, the failures pile up.
0: Okay, so that's why it's really helpful to be able to notice the things that you're doing that are getting in your way, right? Whether in the way you're talking to yourself, relating to yourself, relating to other people, unnecessary tension in your neck, in your lips, around your eyes, in your jaw, in your shoulders, in your hands, in your ankles, in your thighs, right? Unnecessary tension makes you less effective, less happy, less capable, you know, less efficient less less gracious in life
7: so let me just uh, fast forward a little bit in this story. Global fix he met with sports psychologists, he saw a hypnotist, he meditated, he whispered mantras, which he found counterproductive
0: okay, so none of those things are going to deconstruct your layers of unnecessary tension. What you need to learn to do is where am I interfering with my best functioning and then How can I notice what I'm doing, the unnecessary tightness, compression, the self-defeating habits I've developed, the wall of body armoring that I've developed, and how can I inhibit this unnecessary tensing and constricting and compressing myself and then opening up to a more gracious, graceful, efficient and effective way of operating.
7: Every morning, Bard would get out of bed and head to the field for another day of disaster. After the summer, the Red Sox send him to Hawaii for winter,
0: so if you're having day after day of disaster right you're probably not gonna think your your way out of the, the problem. You have to get you know a more objective perspective on yourself that's where why it helps to have a performance coach or an Alexander technique teacher, or you can use video or a trip ditch of, of mirrors to notice what are your habits of unnecessary tension and compression. Once you start noticing these habits of, say, tipping your head back, compressing your neck, you can inhibit that tendency to tense and compress your neck and instead have a gentle wish like you may gently wish that Sunday is a sunny day for your head to release forward and up, leading your spine, leading your whole torso into length and width.
7: Interball. He continued to pitch badly, but he was in Hawaii. He surfed and wore flip-flops to work. The pitching coach there, Mike Cather, saw the tightness in Bard's delivery and on his face. And Bard remembers him promising to send a positive report to the Sox no matter how he pitched. I think I went out and I added three or four miles an hour instantly, Bard recalls. He didn't wonder why he'd snapped out of his funk. He just let it happen.
0: So if you have more tightness, right, that's going to interfere with your sales ability going to interfere with your relationship with yourself, it's going to interfere with your relationships with other people, you're going to think less clearly, you're going to perceive less clearly, life is going to become less enjoyable for you.
7: Struggled too with all the attention he was getting. He wasn't a celebrity, but it was Boston, and he was on the Red Sox. When you're there, it feels like you could go to a restaurant in India and get recognized, he said... In early September, the Sox were in first place and nine games ahead of the Tampa Bay Rays for the final American League.
0: Yeah, and then uh, everything started falling apart. For a
7: star closer, apparently filling the position that Bard had thought would be his. There was an opening in the starting rotation, and he took it. Reporters swarmed him in the clubhouse after bullpen sessions and batting practice. He'd have to
0: Yeah, and uh, his uh, his pitching fell apart.
7: He wasn't recalled to the majors until the end of August, and he didn't pitch well when he got there. He began the next season in Double A, then was demoted to single A. His once smooth delivery had disintegrated. After one outing in September, the crowd booed him, and Adair, who had come to watch him, ran out of the stadium in tears.
0: That's his wife.
7: The next day, the Red Sox let him go. That was when Bard googled the yips. He had known what was happening for a while.
0: Okay, the yips are when you have interfering tension patterns, when you have interfering compression patterns, when you have taken on these habits of unnecessary body armoring and compression, and they make you less effective, less efficient, less gracious, less kind to yourself, less kind to other people.
7: Everyone did. But everyone, including him, had avoided saying it out loud. Many baseball players have minor control issues at one point or another.
0: Was it all because the coach said, grip this? Well, we're all incredibly vulnerable, right? His problem is not because a coach said, grip this. He was a sitting time bomb due to you know, extraordinary levels of unnecessary tension, compression, uh, anxiety, right? But then there was the activating incident that unleashed the, these problems. So you might be going along, you know, thinking, you know, everything's great but then you suffer one setback and your life just spirals downhill. And it's not the setback that's ruined your life. You're a sitting time bomb where just the smallest setback is just going to set you off. So we're all vulnerable. We all have different levels of vulnerability. But if we're denying reality, right, we're going to have a lot of tension and compression. Right? If we you know, built up some bad habits, we're going to be you know, much more open to this sort of collapse. As opposed to if we have some ability to spot our interfering tension and compression patterns. If we have some ability to notice or to take in feedback about you know, self-destructive things we're doing, about unnecessary ways that we're kind of pulling down and tightening and, and pulling in on ourselves, then it's going to be a lot easier to overcome things like the
7: yips. Sometimes it happens after an injury, when a player is relearning how to throw, over-attending to discrete motions that used to feel fluid and natural. Overthinking is the simple way to put it. The brain's prefrontal cortex trips up the sensory cortex and the motor cortex.
0: So just experiment when you get in and out of a chair. just Just convince yourself, I'm not standing, or I'm not sitting, right? Or when you're walking, just convince yourself, I'm not walking, and you'll notice that all your movement becomes easier. That right? is, it's when we think about what we're doing, when we think about our movements, that we tend to tighten up and compress. It's like if I tell you, don't think about a pink elephant, you start thinking about a pink elephant.
7: In other cases, the mind can essentially go blank. Players usually snap out of it, the way Bard had years before. But the brain can get stuck in certain patterns and...
0: So when the brain gets stuck in certain patterns, right, the brain exists inside the body. Right? Habits that are going on in your body are going to affect how your brain functions. If you're tightening and compressing in your body, you're going to be tightening and compressing in your thinking. So what's going on in your body is going to affect your thinking and your emotions. What's going on in your emotions is going to affect your thinking and your body. Right? So our emotions take place within the body. Our thinking takes place within the body. And then the body, in turn, is affected by the the thinking and the emotions all right we We are a unity, and emotions thinking and you know muscular tension patterns are all constantly affecting
7: each other. And the yips can take over in a way that no one fully understands. Years ago, Roger Angel published a piece in this magazine about Steve Blass, a Pittsburgh Pirates ace who won two complete games in the 1971 World Series against the Baltimore Orioles, then lost his skill a year later. Baseball players sometimes call the yips Steve Blass disease. Anyone whose work involves the repetition of refined motor skills, surgeons and musicians, for example, can get the yips. The term was popularized by a golfer, Tommy Armour, who played on the PGA Tour in the 1920s and 30s. Some small percentage of the afflicted suffer from a neurological condition called focal dystonia, which is linked to abnormalities in the neural pathways of the brain and leads to involuntary muscle contractions. Other cases seem to have a psychological basis. When treating athletes with the yips, sports psychiatrists try both to alleviate their anxiety, with breathing exercises, therapy...
0: So there's no psychology outside of the body. Our psychology takes place within our musculature. So whatever's going on with your body is going to have a profound effect on your psychology. If you are tight and tense in your body, right, your, your soul, your demeanor, your self-talk, your interactions with yourself and with other people will be extra tight and extra tense. If you're at ease and gracious and flowing and, you know, feeling fantastic in your body, right, and your body's doing everything that you want it to be able to do, right, you get much you know, More likely to be at ease in your interactions with yourself and with other people. Our thinking similarly takes place within the body. If our body is tight and tense and locked down, our thinking is going to be tight and tense and locked down. Back to
7: the New Yorker and the like, and to fool their brains into accessing deep working memory rather than the misfiring part of the brain. A golfer might try putting with the opposite hand or distracting himself by counting backward from three before swinging. A tennis player struggling with her toss might do little math puzzles just before serving. Debbie, Cr- So these are all distracting from the
0: main issue. The main issue is that you have developed self-defeating muscular tension patterns. And so you need a good Alexander Technique teacher who will notify you to your self-defeating unnecessary tension and compression patterns, help you notice them and then help you inhibit them so that you don't do things that are self-destructive to you, opening up space for lengthening, for for widening, for for letting go of these unhelpful tension and compression patterns.
7: Cruz, a sports psychologist who has published several studies about the yips, told me that the goal often is not to eradicate the yips, but to outsmart them this turns out to be very hard to do.
0: So what he's talking about, she's talking about here, is you know adding new layers on top of the old layers. So I, I prefer the Alexander technique of subtraction instead of adding new layers, you know, new theories, new practices, new tips on top of the old habits. Instead, take a look at your old habits that are getting in your way, the old habits of tension and compression, you know, unnecessary tightness and pulling down and in on yourself and start to notice those, inhibit those, let them go, and have a gentle desire to take up your full space in the world. Have a gentle desire for your head and neck to be free, for your head to release, leading your whole torso into length. So I I love the Alexander technique of subtraction. Noticing the old, unhelpful, self-defeating tension and compression patterns, noticing them so that you can stop performing them, then creating space for growth and for width and for freedom.
7: In 2000, Rick Ankiel, a star rookie for the St. Louis Cardinals, lost his control on the mound during a playoff game. He spent a few years trying to regain his form before he reinvented himself as an outfielder. Clinically, I believe, what happened is this. I don't know, he later wrote in a memoir, and neither does anyone else. While Bard was with the Red Sox, his teammate John Lester found that he couldn't throw the ball to first base anymore. Runners started taking big leads when he pitched. Eventually, he tried bouncing the ball to first. Lester has been reluctant to talk publicly about his difficulties. Steve Sachs.
0: So if you can't talk about your difficulties, it's really hard to overcome them, right? You know you've overcome a difficulty when you can talk about it without getting all sorts of weird tension and compression patterns in your voice or in your face or in your your back.
7: A second baseman for the Dodgers in the 80s has said that when he began struggling to throw, he became the laughingstock of the league. In the sports world, there's still a degree of stigma about mental health issues, partly owing to a narrow definition of toughness.
0: Okay, a good article in The New Yorker. And there's a great... Video on the Patreon of Decoding the Gurus. This is Mick West talking about UFOs and conspiracy psychology, with Australian psychologist Matthew Brown and Irish cognitive anthropologist Chris Kavanaugh. A
2: bit of that. What's going on there? There's a variety of people in the UFO community, and some of them are much more ready to believe than others. You should, you know, if you want to experience it, just kind of join a few UFO groups. And you'll see there's a variety of different types and a bit more nuts and bolts into looking into UFOs. But very, very rapidly when you start looking into UFO culture, you get towards essentially what's supernatural. And people who believe in, excuse me, a supernatural explanation of things uh, are very credulous about you know, accepting a video at face value. And you know, someone posts a video of something that looks like a face reflecting in the window and it's obviously just some blobs of light or something. You'll get a whole bunch of people saying, yeah, I can, I can see what you're saying. And the people say, yeah, I can kind of feel uh, vibrations coming off this picture. Uh, and with, with, with UFOs, like someone posts a fake video and people, you know, why why wouldn't it be real? You know, they accept it. They, they think that there are uh, beings coming from other dimensions, and that projecting realities, and you know, all kinds of things are going on. So there's, there's always a range of people who are going to view any particular video, and some of them are going to view it a certain way.
3: The uh, the obvious, alien autopsy in the room is the recent testimony by uh, David Grush, the yeah. former intelligence officer, or or some position in the government who uh, has. Claimed and too much fanfare. This is, you know, so speaking yeah. Nick, about, you know, that people, well or not, they're, they're critical or not. I've, I'm consistently amazed by the coverage of of this particular story. Um, but uh, yeah. So in any case, he's alleged that. Um, I don't believe he's seen the video. He's just heard that the evidence exists. But people have, have presented it as, as very significant that he's been willing to go on record, um, acknowledging this. And there's there's articles in the Guardian. It's been discussed by by pretty much. Everyone that I can see online in mm-hmm. the guru sphere, and I'm just curious. I think I know, but in any case, your your response to this story and how it's being presented um, currently. Well-
2: the claims are pretty uh, amazing, and if they are true, they would change the world in, uh, uh, um, in an earth-shattering way for forever. It would be the biggest story in human history. But you'll notice that if you go and look at all the front pages of the, the media, there's not really any coverage of it. and I think everybody's being pretty cautious about it. Uh, there's, a, there's a few media outlets that are doing stories on it, but it's not like leading stories. And the reason is that he doesn't really have any evidence. This is one guy saying that other people have told him that there is an alien spaceship crash retrieval program. And he's telling a whole bunch of stories that people have told him that he believes to be true, but he doesn't actually know if they're true. He just, he believes them to be true because people have told him and you know, I think he's seen some documents, but he hasn't even seen any.
0: Right, so 1st claims don't mean anything to me about UFOs or, or voter fraud or, or anything. What I want to see are people with expertise who are making admissions that go against their self-interest, right? If I get... Incredible people with expertise making admissions that go against their self-interest. Right, I, I take that seriously. So when I refused to go along with the the right dissident right uh, herd instinct of of saying that the coronavirus you know, was was no big deal and this is just you know uh, left wing big government overreach. Right, I did that against my own self-interest. My my audience obviously wanted to hear about government overreach, and when I said that. There's no credible evidence that the voter fraud determined the 2020 American presidential election. That was an admission I made against my own self-interest. So, if you've got someone who you know is smart and they are know something and they are making admissions against their own self-interest, right? Those are the type of people that I take seriously, as opposed to you know these absurd, you know, firsthand. Uh, stories about ufos
2: photos he didn't work in the program didn't work in the crash retrieval program and uh he's not seen any of the the spaceships or anything like that and you know the story broke on this, this media site called the debrief and uh, originally they wanted the new york times to do it uh, the one of the reporters there ralph blumenthal was uh, an old new york times reporter and the other one leslie keen uh worked with ralph blumenthal and they did this original story back in 2017 about uh, about louis Elizondo and the whole the, uh, the whole ufo thing back then that's when the videos came out
0: and this is You know, a great revelation about, you know, how inept a lot of experts are, you know, a lot of bureaucracies, a lot of militaries, a lot of, you know, premier news organizations.
2: So they actually started the ball rolling. They tried to kind of repeat that. They tried to get the New York Times to do a story on this, which would have been been huge. New York Times essentially turned them down because of various demands that they wanted about it. I can't remember exactly what the deal was, but the New York Times said no. They went to.
0: So any time that Steve Saylor, for example, differs with the mainstream media, in my experience, Steve Saylor is right. You know, at least 100 times for every time he's wrong compared to the Washington Post or the New York Times. And when it comes to UFOs, uh, Mick West has a similarly impressive track record to the best of my knowledge.
2: To, I think, Politico. Then they went to Washington Post. The Washington Post needed more time to to, to fact-check it. So they, they didn't have the time for some reason, so they went to this other outlet called The Debrief, which is just kind of like a military, um, small media outlet, uh, military-themed with, with the UFO thing, UFO overtoned. And they've just you know, pushed it out, pushed out this article. Um, and, you know, initially, this this article, they just they just say, we have this crushable program, we have documents, people told me this, blah, blah, blah. Then we get a video of a bits of interview of this guy, Dave Grush, done by this, this uh, Australian journalist, Ross Colfart. And he says, starts saying things that are even more amazing. He says that not only do we have crashed alien spaceships, some of the crashed alien spaceships have bodies in them, uh, which I thought really should have been the lead, really should have been the lead <laughs> thing. We have crashed alien, uh, we have actually <laughs> alien bodies. But, turns out, he never talked to Leslie Keane about that. He never talked to the two journalists about that for some reason. And she was like, you know, I don't want to talk about bodies. And you know, if he, if, if he had told me about bodies, I wouldn't have put them in the story because you know, bodies is too much. So it's almost okay. like that she, she doesn't believe him on the bodies thing, but she does believe him on the spaceship thing. And, but she wants to do a spaceship story because she knows that's all true. But the bodies thing is a bit sketchy. And then he, he does okay. like another interview for like a French uh, newspaper, I think uh, La Parisienne, something like that. And in that, he makes a claim that the U.S. acquired a UFO in 1944. Nearly eighty years ago, from uh, from Italy, and this this UFO landed in Italy in 1933 and was captured by Mussolini's uh, guys and held in a warehouse somewhere for for nine years until towards the end of World War II when the the Allies invaded Italy and they took this this UFO back to the states and they started analyzing it and then they you know they discovered Velcro and Teflon and stuff like that and semiconductors by by analyzing this UFO, uh, which it's just basically part of UFO mythology. Yeah, It's, it's this old story that, that's been knocking around for a long time. And a lot of people think that it's just a fake story. So it almost seems like, you know, it's not like he's discovered all these secrets. It's like somebody who believes in all the UFO stuff has been talking to someone else, telling them stuff. And then they talk to Dave Grush and Dave Grush is like, oh my God, we got this thing back in 1944. Yeah. And you know, there's, it's, it's just all of it. All of it is, is essentially UFO mythology. I remember someone tweeted today and they said, there's nothing in what Dave Grush has said today that we didn't already know. It's just that he's you know a trained professional who's coming forward for the first time. He, he told us that he was asked what evidence do you have that these are alien craft? So they've got these alien craft with dead aliens inside them. And he says, what evidence do you have that, this is, that these are alien craft? He doesn't say like, oh, well, you know, they had aliens inside them. He says like, you know, we, we did some analysis of the isotope ratio of, of some metal and it was an unusual isotope <laughs> ratio that must've been engineered. <laughs> they just ignored the alien body. Yeah, just the 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 aliens, aliens <laughs> sat around there. They're like, what is this weird bit of tinfoil? <laughs> so it's uh, it's not the most compelling sounding story to me it, it sounds pretty ridiculous and he apparently has receipts apparently other people are going to come forward and corroborate what he's saying but it just sounds like he's repeating uh ufo mythology the, the isotope ratio thing is is like at least 10 years old i think people have been finding bits of of, of, of metal and being like oh this isn't the right isotope ratio and then there's another piece of metal um it's this little triangular piece of metal it's made of multiple layers of uh, magnesium and bismuth and a bit of zinc and uh, people are saying like, you know no human technology can create this. It's a metamaterial. It's a terahertz waveguide. Uh, but this is something that I believe it was sent in to Art Bell, who's this, this conspiracy theorist radio host, like 20 years ago, with this cover letter. Of this guy saying my grandfather had these things from his time in the, the military when he was like a, a telepathic communicator with the aliens. And he, I found this in an envelope in the attic, and I'm sending them to you to take care of. And they've been knocking around the UFO community ever since. But uh, yeah, it's just a bit of just a little bit of scrap metal essentially. Like, it's, it's got these weird layers that probably come from some industrial process, like it was sort of sputtering or something like that, where you coat coat things and. Then and a bit of the side of the container got coated with something but yeah these again it's just all ufo mythology being repeated in this weird framework of, of you know playing telephone where everyone tells everybody something else it's all top secret and you don't know that it was originally just this, this silly story and now it's gone through to dave Groshen, and now he's telling it to congress
3: we we had a, a like a slight experience of this through the content that we analyze um looking at that at kind of um, secular guru space because um in particular well, there were a couple of other people that mentioned it as well, but the, the two most prominent were Sam Harris and Eric Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Indicated that they'd been contacted, I believe, yep. independently by someone, and the person had got their telephone number. This was this was part of the thing that they found very convincing, and that person promised that they were going to reveal evidence to them about mm-hmm. the. And this was around the same time as that information was starting to uh, appear in New York Times and the stories that you just talked about. And Sam Harris talked about it on this podcast. Um, And he seemed quite, you know, he acknowledged that it, you know, this is, I'm not all in on this. I'm just saying that there's credible people.
0: Just saying, credible people saying we got UFOs and alien bodies. Okay, talk to you later. Bye-bye.